We're in a series called Heritage, and one second. The hope has been that other pastors in the Reality family would share something that they received here, just as Bo said. So um, some uh, Reality family trait that has impacted us from CARP that has spread throughout the country and in some cases throughout the world, right? To LA and to San Francisco and Stockton and London and Hawaii and this little city called Boston. And so when we planted Reality Church Boston almost seven years ago, um, there were several seeds that were transplanted from this soil to that one. And uh, seeds like intimacy with God, or relational ministry, or transformative community. And I could riff on those topics all day long, but it wasn't to be, because I got assigned a different topic. (laughs) The other reality pastors, thanks guys, they took all of those ones. (laughs) And uh, I was assigned the part of our DNA called mission, or being missional. Now for some of you, when you hear the word mission, it just makes your heart sing, right? Maybe you've been gifted with the gift of evangelism, and you hear, live on mission, and you're just like... The adrenaline starts pumping. You're like a dog with a bone. That's not me. I don't see myself as Mr. Mission, and maybe it's because the word mission for me has become detached from its meaning. The word mission for me feels like more about persuasion than it's about people and intimate relationships. Sometimes it's confused more with heralding truth on a street corner rather than healing Men and women who are going through deep emotional and physical and spiritual pain. And so I remember feeling discouraged that I struggled to love my new city when we first moved to Boston. Church planners have these phrases that you're to move there and love the city and serve the city and do good for the city. A lot of it comes from Jeremiah 29, the passage that was spoken to us when we were confirmed to move to Boston. But I was there and I remember feeling like, gosh, I, I struggle to love this city because I moved from Carpinteria, California, where it's sunny almost every day, to Boston, where it's sunny like three days out of the year. And I remember sharing that with my friend Britt Merrick and he said, well, what if you're not called to love the city and serve the city and do good for the city? What if you're just called to love Jesus with all of your heart? all of your soul and all of your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And he said his name. Uh, He knew his name. My neighbor's name is Mark, but in Bostonium, it's Mach. And so he said, what if you just called to love Mach with all of your heart as your neighbor? And you know, since then, I've come to believe that the heart behind Christian mission is something so much more relational, so much more simple, so much more practical and not easy at all. And you can actually pick up what that one word is. It can be summed up in a single word. Do you know what that word is? Maybe you can pick it up as we read through the scripture reading for this morning. And I've asked Carol Stoltz to come and read the scripture for us this morning out of Luke chapter 14. We're reading from Luke chapter 14, verses 12 to 24. He also said to the ones who had invited him, When you give a lunch or dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers, your relatives, or your rich neighbors, because they might invite you back and you would be repaid. On the contrary, when you host a banquet, invite those who are poor 
maimed, lame, or blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, The one who will eat bread in the kingdom of God is blessed. And then he told him, A man was giving a large banquet and invited many. At the time of the banquet, he sent his slave to tell those who were invited, Come, because everything is now ready. But without exception, they all began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. I ask you to excuse me. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm going to try them out. I ask you to excuse me. And another said, I just got married, and therefore I'm unable to come. So the slave came back and reported these things to his master. Then in anger, the master of the house told his slave, Go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the city and bring in here the poor, maimed, blind, and lame. Master, the slave said, What you ordered has been done, and there's still room. Then the master said, told the slave, Go out into the highways and lanes and make them come in, so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, not one of those men who were invited will enjoy my banquet. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Father in heaven, that you're here with us. And Jesus, you tell us you walk in the midst of the lampstand. You walk in the midst of your church. You are present right now with healing power and love and grace. You have words for us to enliven our soul and bring a peace beyond understanding no matter where we might find ourselves. And we ask this, that we would experience this. Give us ears to hear. And right now, if you're sitting there and you're saying, God, you feel far from me. Just voice that to God in a whisper. And if you're saying, Jesus, I need you, voice that to Jesus right now in a whisper. He is here amongst us. And I ask, Lord, that in no way would I be in the way of what you want to say this morning to your beloved. We pray this in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Amen. When I read this passage, it reminds me that mission is more relational and more simple than I tend to imagine it. And Jesus' way of mission is as much about breaking bread as it is about sharing truth, is as much about passing a cup as it is about proclaiming the kingdom. It's more about sharing food than sharing a formula. And if you summed it up in one word, what we just read there, you could sum it up with this particular word, and the word is hospitality. In fact, this is just the one amongst many scenes in the Gospels that reveal that hospitality is the heart behind Christian mission. One New Testament scholar says, in Luke's Gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. So many times in the Gospels, it says Jesus was eating. Jesus was there dining. Jesus was reclining. That's no accident. Jesus' primary vehicle for doing mission was in hospitality, giving it and receiving it. Tim Chester, an author, says, we can make community and mission sound like specialized activities that belong to experts. And some people have a vested interest in doing this because it makes them feel extraordinary. Or we focus on dynamic personalities who can hold an audience and lead a movement. Some push mission beyond the scope of ordinary Christians, but the Son of Man, 
He came eating and drinking. It's not complicated. True, it's not always easy. It involves people invading your space or going to places where you don't feel comfortable, but it's not complicated. If you share a meal three or four times a week and you have a passion for Jesus, then you will be building up the Christian community and reaching out in mission. Please do not misunderstand me. As Chester said, the spiritual practice of hospitality can be hard. You know why? Because it, inv- it invades your space. It invades my time, my calendar. It can be awkward. It can force us into having those awkward, honest conversations that in the life of the church, where we're accustomed to being nice and being like cordial with one another, we're not used to having those kinds of conversations. But that's part of spiritual growth. But notice in verse 14, even though hospitality might cost you some honest conversations, your comfort, and probably some cash, Jesus is so serious about this form of hospitality that he promises that his followers will be repaid or rewarded in the coming age. Verse 14, why? Because hospitality is the heart of Christian mission. And I want to show you in two ways how it is. Number one, we'll, look, we'll break down the rest of this talk in this way. The reason why it's the heart of Christian mission is that, number one, hospitality is how we share God's welcome with the world. And number two, hospitality is how God shares his welcome with you. So first, hospitality is how I share God's welcome to the world. Now today when we use the word hospitality, we tend to think of one of two things. We either think of the hospitality industry like restaurants or uh, hotels, or we think of, secondly, entertaining friends and co-workers or clients, etc. Here's the thing about the kind of hospitality that Jesus is talking about here, that he's displaying. We'll call it kingdom hospitality for our purposes. It's more of a spiritual practice than a dinner party for associates. Social grace. It's a spiritual practice instead. In Jesus' day, hospitality in the Greco-Roman culture was a form of status display. You invite important people to your home, and then they're willing to accept your invitation. If they come, it's a measure of your worth. It's a measure of your status. So when someone held a banquet, you made sure that you invited all the important people, right? The power brokers, the people who have money. You invited those folks, and often those banquets tended towards luxury and decadence, especially where luxury was not well spread in the Greco-Roman world. So in that form of hospitality, you're welcoming others into your home, but beneath it, beneath the hood of what's happening, because in our actions, there's always something happening, operating beneath the hood, right? Beneath the hood of that form of hospitality was a Desire for belonging, for power, and for privilege. Your guest list says more about you than it did them. That's why Brendan Manning in his book, Abba Child, says, when belonging to an elite group eclipses the love of God, or when I draw my life and meaning from any source other than my belovedness, I'm spiritually dead. That's the context that Luke 14 is set in. And if you include verses 1 through 11, you'll see that Jesus was invited to a home of a very prominent religious leader called a Pharisee. All the other guests in that room were very important people. This is the kind of room you and I would want to be invited to. And once you accepted that invitation, you were sort of expected to return the favor 
uh, to those who invited you. But I'm not sure that they knew who they were getting when Jesus showed up to the party. Because right in the middle of the meal, Jesus radically and awkwardly alters the meaning of hospitality for everyone in the room and you and I in this room. Verse 12, we said, he also said to one who had invited him, when you give a lunch or a dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers, your relatives, or your rich neighbors because they might invite you back and you would be repaid. On the contrary, when you host a banquet, invite those who are poor and maimed and lame and blind and you'll be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid, rewarded at the resurrection of the righteous, the coming kingdom of God. So I want you to imagine you're in this dinner, you hear the clanking of the silverware or the clay pots or whatever it might be, and you imagine Jesus saying this right in the middle of this crowded room, and it's a stinging critique, and would have been a shocking statement to everyone in that room, but it provides us an answer to the question, what's so different about kingdom hospitality than normal just having people over? Kingdom hospitality is when you show hospitality to those who can never reciprocate. It's when you extend hospitality to those who have very little to offer you in return. It's not to reinforce social sameness, but to cross social difference. Jesus says the moment you begin to do that, it's a visible sign that the kingdom of God has now come into your midst. And he says in particular, when you show hospitality to the poor and the weak and the blind and the lame, when the least of these are being brought into your home and into your life, that, Jesus says, is a sign that the kingdom of God is beginning to develop and blossom in your soul. And with this one conversation, Jesus transforms hospitality from a social grace into a spiritual practice. Transforms it from reinforcing social hierarchy into being the most powerful tool to subvert that hierarchy that tends to exclude so many from our lives. When I first moved to Carpinterio with my family and two young daughters at that time, now I have three daughters who are getting quite older, We moved here 10 years ago, 2009, and we just started a series called Missio Christi. Anybody remember that series? Yes, you do. You guys are original gangsters in here. (laughs) And that series became a book called Godspeed later, and during that series, it was remarkable to see how many people began to care for the poor and for the least of these. And I talked to a gal this past week who was hosting us at her home, and she said she remembers, I I brought up this story, and she remembers taking one woman to her doctor appointments, both in Carpinteria and Santa Barbara. She got tired of driving to Santa Barbara. She says that, you know what, I'm going to find you a doctor in Carp instead. And that ended the relationship. But um, (laughs) I remember that one particular morning, when I was brand new, just had moved to Carpinteria. So this series was brand new to me, and the whole experience was. The whole experience, by the way, of being invited over to people's houses on a moment's notice. Hey, Al, it's 5.30. We're having tacos in 10 minutes. You guys want to come over? That was a new experience to me. We're in our jammies. It's okay, so are we. Bring your jammies and tortillas. (laughs) But I remember one particular morning walking in those doors for a prayer uh, gathering at 6.45 a.m. And as I walked through the door, there was a storm. It was the big storm of Carpinteria in 2009. 
I've moved to Boston since then. I know what a real storm is, but (laughs) that was a storm for us. And you know, when I walked in, I had to walk around bodies that were sleeping on the floor or on cots in the foyer because the leadership team had gathered together and said, you know what, there's a storm happening outside. We're in this series calling Missio Christi, caring for the least of these. Let's bring them in and let them sleep in the foyer. And I have to tell you, when I walked in, I wasn't quite sure how I felt about that. But I have to be honest with you that Those seeds went deep and they were transplanted from this soil into another soil, into Boston. Because we developed a philosophy of mission that we said, you know what, we can change the city one meal at a time. And we launched our church and said our community groups will share meals as a means of connection and mission and we'll invite others into our homes who are unlike us and our groups will serve the poor one time a month and our groups will meet for dinner one time a month and it'll be open to people who are unlike you one time a month. And from that time, one of my favorite Christmas memories in Boston is a man named Fred inviting Fred into my home for Christmas Eve dinner. He's a homeless vet who was at the time estranged from his family and no stranger to the bottle. He had started coming to our church. I didn't think he was a believer. I'm not sure where he was in terms of his faith. It didn't matter to us at that moment. We wanted to practice this, and so we invited him to, his, to our house for Christmas Eve dinner, and it was amazing to watch him tuck in his sweatshirt and just try to like make himself all ready. He had the sweats because he was trying to stay sober at the time. And Fred has since become like a family member in our church community. I remember driving in a small caravan of believers in our church in the snow to see him and to cheer him up in the sober living community household that we had sent him to, that he fled from. And then we went to see him at the other one that we sent him to and that he was struggling in. And I took my girls and I really didn't want to go out there on a Sunday afternoon when I was tired after a full day. We took our kids there just to sit with Fred and have a meal in his sober living home. It was like, this is what parenting is. This is what it is to be able to give my kids a taste of the kingdom of God. And Fred, in Fred's life, we've seen small transformations occur. As each Sunday he comes and he says, look, I got my license. Look, I have a job interview. My daughter contacted me on Facebook. I'm going to go visit her for lunch. That's a beautiful thing. How did Jesus go about announcing that God's reign and offer of God's love is immediately available to anyone who receives it? The Son of Man came eating and drinking. He did it a lot of ways, but one primary way was that he ate with tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners and outcasts. And each of these meals were radically offensive to the religious establishment because in those meals, Jesus wasn't willing to just be a gracious host to the weak and the lost. No, in those meals, Jesus was willing to put himself in a place of need, become the guest of somebody else's hospitality. And you know what he's doing there? He's dignifying the hospitality of a prostitute of a tax collector and the marginalized in the giving and receiving of hospitality across racial and social and political difference, Jesus was the clearest sign that a new or an entirely new 
reign had begun. A new world order was breaking into the world and it was a world order of love. It seems that the early church took this very seriously. It's not a mistake that the sacrament that Jesus leaves behind is not just baptism, it's breaking bread together with people who were very unlike you socially and economically and racially. It's breaking meal around a table and it's no mistake that in the Greco-Roman world, which was a highly stratified society, the only people of different social standing and classes, the only time those people would gather and eat a public meal together was when, do you think? On the first day of the week, on Sunday, when they would break bread and pass wine and share the Lord's Supper. That was radically countercultural. There, both slave and master sit as equals before the table of God because they are equal in their need for his mercy and grace. There, men and women come as equal children of God, Jew and Gentile, every division, every hierarchy, every superior and inferior class is brought to the mercy of God because God says at this table, son, daughter, I want you to pull up a chair because you are my welcome guests. And I want you to break bread with this person who's very unlike you and you might have differences of opinion with them. And that's good because that's the kingdom of God. And do you know what? You got to listen to this. In the life of the early church, it seems that this command to practice this new kind of hospitality was taken so seriously that when you look at some of the requirements of being an officer in the church, there's only a handful of things that come up in every single one of those lists. But one of the requirements is that leaders must practice hospitality. It's become far more than a social grace in the life of the Christian community. In the early church, it was a spiritual practice that became a responsibility to practice so that the world would see an entirely new order of love that's begun in Jesus Christ. And beyond the early church, every historian of the ancient West would acknowledge that it was the Christian faith and hospitality that transformed the Western view of obligations to the poor and the weak and the marginal. How do you think Salvation Army's come to be? You could no longer ignore others because you were of a higher class. They were those who were made in the image of God and that you had an obligation to love. There's a woman by the name of Rosario Butterfield. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of her. She was a tenured professor at Syracuse University. She was a lesbian activist fighting to advance the cause of LGBTQ equality and a self-confessed unlikely convert. In her 1999, uh, her conversion or in her life in 1999, her life intersected with the gospel of Jesus through a friend's radical, ordinary hospitality. She had a friend who was a pastor in a Presbyterian church in New York City that would open his home. And once a week, the door was always open at 5.30. You can come in and just have a meal and we're just going to open the Bible and we're going to sing a song from the Psalter and we're just going to talk about life and scripture and our hurts and our pains and our healings and how we can help one another. And she tells a story about how she met a Presbyterian, this Presbyterian pastor and she actually wrote a book called The gospel comes with a house key. That house key is hospitality. And she says, For two years I was loved and welcomed by a Christian community that I mocked, 
I despised, I rejected, I accepted them when it worked for me and rejected them all the other times. There is simply no other way I would have walked into a church if I hadn't had a genuine friendship with the man behind the pulpit. I met with them once a week. At their home, the door was wide open. People were always in and out of the house. People from the church and people not from the church. Heated, genuine conversation would happen. People would speak honestly and tears would flow, but it was different because Kim would open the Bible and sing from the Psalter and then he would pray. It was so disarming, I couldn't help but go back. It was this, in this context of hospitality that Ken brought the church to me because it was impossible for me to go to the church without the bridge of somebody's home. And then she says, The difference between entertainment and hospitality is that entertainment's about impressing people and keeping them at arm's length. I know how to do that. I'm pretty good. Hospitality is about opening up your heart and your home just as you are and being willing to invite Jesus into the conversation. Not to stop the conversation, but to deepen it. Hospitality is fundamentally an act of missional evangelism. Boom. How did Jesus go about announcing that God's reign and love is immediately available to anyone who receives? I asked that question before. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. One of the most spiritual questions that we can ask ourselves is this. You ready for it? It's hard medicine. Who do I eat with? I think that what this passage is pressing is that if Christians want to, at some level, be a visible sign that God's reign has begun in Jesus Christ, then as followers of Jesus, I have to ask myself, how can my table also accompany people who are very much unlike me? And then those meals, that kind of practice of hospitality, the the watching world begins to see this new world order that's out of love and has the power to transform anyone as we become neighbors to everyone. Kingdom hospitality is how we share God's welcome with the world. It's how how we share God's welcome with the world. That God is pulling up a chair for you, desires you to come to him, to sup and dine with him with all of your brokenness and all of your flaws all of your excuses, all of your religious smokescreen and say, son, daughter, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. Kingdom of hospitality is how we share God's welcome with the world. And as Jesus says, do you have any idea how hard it is for those who have it all to enter the kingdom of heaven? Many of us do have it all. And when we share hospitality, when we're willing to share a table or our trouble or our sorrows, we begin to break down those senses of entitlement that can creep in so subtly. All who are lame and poor and miserable and blind, you are welcome at God's table. And Jesus tells this parable and says these words, But he doesn't say, okay, now go do it. 
Because that would be very crushing, wouldn't it? It'd be very crushing to live under that kind of weight of requirement. So what does he do? He instead does what he does so well. You know what he does? He tells a story. And that leads us secondly to our last point, that hospitality is not just how God shares his welcome with the world. Hospitality is how God shares his welcome with you. Again, let me set the scene. When Jesus says these words at the dinner table, you can imagine how shocked the listeners would be. For one, they're shocked that Jesus would say such things in this kind of setting. He's totally disrupting the norm. But two, they would be shocked at imagining what their life, right now, because you might be imagining what your life or your social circles might look like, how they might be interrupted if you begin to practice this form of hospitality and mission. How the poor and the blind and the lame would fit into my life or into my home or into my social setting. Sometimes when we have guests over to our home, we'll ask the question, if you could have dinner with any historical person, who would you have dinner with? And anyone who ever says, Jesus Christ, I'm like, you obviously never read the Bible. Because Jesus will blow your dinner party up in a moment. He'll wreck that whole thing. That's what's happening here. Jesus is blowing up this dinner party with the concept of hospitality. And in the midst of that awkwardness, some guy gets religious. He just shouts out, "Uh, well, the one who eats bread in the kingdom of God is blessed. (laughs) It's like people who just say religious words because they forgot how to be normal. <laughs> it's a pet peeve. <laughs> After living in Boston, you know, that'll happen. Jesus begins to tell a story about a powerful person who invited several people to his banquet. And he sends his servant out, this man, this story, sends his servant out with invitations. Everyone, you're welcome to come to the meal of a very powerful man. Come one, come all. But one by one, they all deny him. And so the servant comes back to the man who's throwing the party with all of the excuses of the invitees. And did you notice what the excuses all have in common? Carol read them. I bought a field. I bought five yokes of oxen. I just got married. The one thing that all these activities and excuses have in common is that the people are all obsessed with their status. Servant returns and gives the news to the one throwing the banquet, and the man says, or in anger, the master of the house tells his servant, well, go out quickly into the streets and the alley of the city and bring here the poor and maimed and blind and lame. It's no accident that the same people who are invited to this party, the poor and the maimed and the blind and the lame, are the same ones who are again invited in this next story. So the servant goes out and returns. It says in 22, Master, the slave said, what you ordered has been done and there's still room. What a beautiful statement is that? How broad and wide and expansive is God's grace to say, I've done everything that you've said and there's still room at the table. And just when you think of God's love and grace has gone as far as it possibly could go. There's still room. So the man sends the servant out to the highways and the byways and the alleyways and seedy parts of town to the truly desolate, to the disrepute, to the poorest of the poor. And he says, it doesn't matter how long it takes. I want you to convince them and I want you to bring them in. I want those who have been utterly exclusive 
excluded to be brought inside. And Jesus concludes with a portrait of this eternally majestic table. You know why? It's a picture of the fact that one day we will have a banquet and a feast and a true party where the food doesn't run out, where there is no poor and there are no sort of, uh, you know, there's no marginalized any longer. We're one at the table and we're feasting and we're celebrating just like in Harry Potter book two. <laughs> They're on the inside now. They were the outsiders, the excluded from society. And now these ones who are the socially inept are on the inside feasting while the power brokers and religious leaders are on the outside. You see, the gospel becomes most distasteful to the influential and the well-educated. I know because I live in that city. The closer that you feel to the centers of social power, the more offensive the gospel becomes to you. Because what does the gospel say? It says, I'm fundamentally distorted by sin. I'm distracted by actual sin and manipulated by indwelling sin. And as a result, I struggle with what it really means to carry out this image and imprint of a loving God. So healing requires a radical conversion and redemptive life of Christ. And here's the, here's, the, here's the rub. The harder you try to change yourself and prove yourself that that's not the case, the more you get entangled in self-righteousness. And what you need is the blood of Jesus that's provided for you at a table to cleanse you and draw you and make you completely clean of your self-righteousness and sin. That's why Henry Nouwen, who moved from being a professor at Harvard to a, a, a physically needy community called Libri, he moves there and all of his identity as an author and professor and an academic is removed. There, those who have special needs, they don't care that you wrote a book. Are we going to play cards or not? And it broke him. And he said... I came to see that it was in my brokenness, in my powerlessness, in my weakness that Jesus was made strong. It was in the acceptance of my lack of faith that God could give me faith. It was in the embracing of my brokenness that I could identify with others' brokenness. It was my role to identify with others' pain, not relieve it. Ministry was sharing, not dominating, understanding, not theorizing, caring, not fixing. Every one of us wants to take the gospel of grace and turn it into a religion of works. Religion of works feeds into self-image and success and how can I be self-sustaining? But the gospel of grace runs counter to all of that. And Jesus' point in this story is that the thing that you think would exclude you from God is not that you're too weak. It's not that you're damaged. It's not that you're too sinful. The thing that will exclude you from God is that you're too proud. You're too self-important. You're too secure in your superiority, whether it's morally, or spiritually, economically, Whatever. Do you see yourself as the poor, cripple, lame, blind? Does that offend you? 
Or does that bring you a hope that goes beyond anything that you could ever imagine? That at the same time, I am more, <laughs> I'm more broken and sinful than I could have ever imagined. And yet because of, I am in Christ through faith in him, I am at the same time more loved and adored and accepted than I could have ever dared dream. The gospel says that God came into human history and made himself a vulnerable guest. And from the day that he arrived, we said, sorry, bro, there's no room at the inn for you. So he grew up in the backwoods of Nazareth, on the margins. He grew up rejected. He had no place to lay his head. And when God became our guest, we saw his compassion and love for the people unlike us, and we saw it as a threat. And so we took him. We tied him up and we mocked him and we said, if you're the king, come down and save yourself then. One man gets it. He's a thief. He's been cast out of everybody else's living room and table. And he turns to Jesus and he repents and he just says, will you please remember me? And what does Jesus say to him? Today you'll be my guest and forever you'll have a place with me in paradise at my table. The poor, the blind, the thief, the lame, the beggar has a place with Jesus. And the reason Jesus tells this story is that unless you know what it's truly like to be a guest at the table of utter grace, you, don't, you won't know how to share your table so it becomes a means of grace for others. No matter how hard you try, have you experienced this love? Have you experienced the hospitality of God. Did you know that's what's offered for you here at this table? I want to give you a few practical ways to show hospitality and then we'll be done. These are very quick. How do we recover hospitality as more than just a social grace and a spiritual practice? I want to give you just a few quick ways. Number one, this is a hard thing, man. So I recommend finding someone who's already doing hospitality well and offer help. And I know some of you, and I know that some of you, you already do this. And some of you do this within your community groups. Find someone who already does it and offer to help. Secondly, we have to constantly ask ourselves the question and wrestle with it. Who do I eat with? Who do I make it a point to eat with? Is it only those who can further my career, further my social acceptance, further my social standing? Or is it others who can offer me something in no return? Number three, make sure that hospitality shows up on your calendar. I don't know if you're like me. If hospitality doesn't show up on my calendar, it just won't happen. And start small. Uh, today, I'm going to ask this person at my work for if, they, if I can offer them a cup of coffee. Don't be a hero. Start small. Start intentional with hospitality. Number four, be okay with your mess. Of course, it's good and right to honor guests with preparation, but don't feel like you have to be perfect. Sometimes for us, some, one of the things that gets in the way of hospitality for us is that we're just, you know, we have three children and messes happen and we don't want people to see our mess. But you know what? That's real life. Everybody's got mess. Number five, we'll need to do this together. It's difficult to begin to try this as a practice. I encourage you to try this in your community group if you're a part of community group. Talking together about how we do this together. These practices aren't just meant to be alone or individual. And number six, remember the hospitality that God has shown you in Jesus Christ. This is the key that opens the door to the house called hospitality. 
Remember how wide and broad the table of God is. Not because you're worthy, but because he's worthy. And he's sending you back into the world to host a mini table of grace yourself. So as we come to this table, I want you to listen to this. This is, um, these are the words of Philip Yancey, who wrote a book called What's So Amazing About Grace? And in this book, he quotes an author by the name of Nancy Mares. And she says, I don't partake because I'm a good Catholic. She's a Catholic believer, holy and pious and sleek. I partake because I'm a bad Catholic, riddled with, by, by doubt, anxiety, and anger, fainting from severe hypoglycemia of the soul. That's incredible if you didn't know that. Of course you did. And he goes on, and, and now and goes on to say this. Just close your eyes and listen to this because this is what we're doing right now. A few times I've assisted in the ceremony of the Lord's Supper. And when I do, a 60-year-old white woman and a former prostitute comes forward. A man of color whose mind was warped from the Vietnam War. Then there's Sarah, whose turban covers her bald head where the tumor was removed. And then there was Michael, whose stutter was so bad he would physically cringe every time someone would address him. And to each one of these, when they came forward, I would hold out the chalice and the bread, and I'd say, Michael, this is the body of Christ broken for you. This is the blood of Christ shed for you, Michael. What could we offer people other than grace on tap? What better can the church ever offer than a means of grace? Grace here among these shattered families and half-coping individuals. And our Father in heaven, we thank you for the table of grace, the grace on tap that we now come to called the Lord's Supper. And as we partake, we partake not because we're worthy, but because we say, Christ in me, whom I belong to, he is worthy. And we rejoice, Jesus. We rejoice that you pull up a chair for us and say, sit, I've been waiting. Let's have a meal together. We pray this in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Amen.